You're listening to continuing Arizona votes coverage of the 2022 election with Mike Broomhead. Hey, thanks for being here. And uh, a big shout out to the team last night. The uh, the KTAR news team is stellar and they did such a great job last night. The reporters out in the field, people working tirelessly here in the building, making sure we got as accurate information and up to the minute information as we could. And there are a lot of very tired people in this building today, but they should be satisfied because they did a great job last night. It was it's a pleasure to be a part of this team. Um, And uh, so I, I apologize for patting everybody on the back publicly, but I think they deserve it. They certainly earned it in the news team and the people that were here all night. The producer, Julia, was here and Zinsmeister and Pablo and the people that were here last night making sure that this went off without a hitch was really terrific. And Becky Lynn, and it was just great. It was a great night. And so a big thanks to the team last night for making us that were on the air look good because you guys sure did a great job. Um, Democrats leading Republicans in key Arizona House races and early results. Um, And this is talking about the state legislature. I moved here in 1995. And it was almost a supermajority if it wasn't a supermajority of Republicans in both the House and the Senate. I mean, this was a dark red state. And in the last, I would say, eight to ten years, we have seen, even though we've elected Republican governors, it has been – it's been interesting to watch. We had Governor Brewer. Then we had Governor Ducey for two terms. But the state legislature has shrunk in its majority, where the Republicans only hold a one-seat majority in the House and the Senate. And we still don't know how that's all going to play out here in Arizona. And I think it's fascinating. In some of these other races, um, early early voting had uh, Julie Gunnigal leading in the county attorney's race. The interim, uh, Rachel Mitchell, now has pulled ahead there. A large drop about 1 a.m. gave uh, Rachel Mitchell a 52-48 to 48 lead. And so uh, will she retain that office and be officially elected to that office? Uh, I've talked about the importance of that office as well in these in the relationship that has to be there between law enforcement and the prosecution. And there wasn't a lot of attention paid to it, even by me, and I'm such a law enforcement advocate. But it is something that I think people are paying more and more attention to as we have seen shifts around the country. Well, whether you call them a district attorney or a county attorney or whatever you call them, um, they are shifting in some of their politics and what they're doing. And it's enraging law enforcement and it's and more attention has been paid to the prosecution side of things. And I think it's necessary with the mistakes that were made in that office before uh, Rachel Mitchell took over. Um, it was it was there was frustration from law enforcement. You know, law enforcement is overworked and understaffed as it is. And for them to put cases together and get them to the county attorney's office only to see them sit on a desk and not be prosecuted when you're working hard with very little staff um, both they you understand that they're understaffed in the county attorney's office but so are the cops and they're making the cases and the attorney's office wasn't prosecuting the cases so there is a relationship there and I think just as much as we pay close attention with Chief Sullivan coming into the Phoenix Police Department, a law, uh, we're going to talk a little bit later on about what's happened at the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office um, with Sheriff Penzone. But there has to be that relationship with the county attorney's office. And so this race well, was kind of overlooked because of the big statewides and the controversies and the vitriol. But this is one of the most important offices. I live in Maricopa County, as do most of you that are listening. And that county attorney's office is imperative to law enforcement. So which direction they go? And what's fascinating about this is a Republican is overtaken in the county attorney's office, but a Democrat still leads in the attorney general's office. But that gap is been closed to two-tenths of a percent with Abe Hamaday closing that gap. It's, it's interesting to see the difference there, I just from my view. Um, 
And then uh, the House races uh, here in Arizona, there is a couple of things we knew. Guy, Ruben Gallego race was called. Grijalva won uh, pretty handily. Debbie Lesko and Paul Gosar were unopposed. But in District 1, um, and this was fascinating, in District 1, um, Jevin Hodge had a bit of a lead, a little bit of a lead over um, – over uh, David Schweikert. But when you look at what the latest in this, um, the lead is now only a couple of tenths of a percent, and that's it. Uh, less than a percent, a percentage point. And uh, that is, uh, that's interesting that that race has closed, uh, Schweikert has closed the gap uh, overnight. Eli Crane is up, up pretty well over Tom O'Halloran. Um, and redistricting, I don't know how interesting this is to anybody, but the redistricting of, of everybody that was affected by redistricting running for House seats, Tom O'Halloran was the one affected the most. There was like a 16-point swing to the Republicans in that, in that direction, but it looks like Eli Crane has probably won that seat. Greg Stanton, a pretty handy lead over Kelly Cooper. Andy Biggs looks like he's doing very, very well as well. Um, and then this race between uh, Juan Siscomani and, and uh, Kirsten Engel is pretty close as well. So there are still some undecided races in some of these other seats that didn't get as much attention as the big statewide races. But we understand why those statewides got such big attention nationally, not just here in Arizona. Uh, I talked earlier about this being a referendum possibly on Donald Trump, I would say this. If I if I were in the Republican Party, now I'm a Republican voter. I'm not a party member, meaning I'm not a pre- precinct committeeman. I don't have voting rights for party leadership. Um, I don't do any of those things. And uh, I think they're pretty happy about that in leadership. But I would say my advice to them would be there needs to be you need to be self-aware. Everyone needs to be as self-aware as possible. And sometimes that's taking a good, hard look at what you need to do to improve. And we're going to continue to talk about this. I'm not here to bash anyone, but I will say that the Republican Party in Arizona has to take a good, hard look um, at at what's happening around the country. When you see um, what happened in Florida, that was a red wave. Let's be honest. What happened in Florida is a red wave. Texas, you know, the the Beto O'Rourke is a very he's got great name ID in Texas. It was a walkover for Abbott. That was called. So when you look at these races and other places that have been closely connected to Arizona on the border issue, especially, but also on the economy, if you look at um, Texas and Florida are no income tax states. Our current governor has tried to get us as close to a no income tax, no state income tax as possible. When you see those races so runaway in comparison to what Arizona is, Arizona needs to assess and ask the question, why is this happening to us? Why are we not seeing bigger leads? Now, in the end, we're going to wait and see how many of the Republicans win. And in the end, nobody remembers what the spread is. You only remember the victory. So they will see the Republican Party will have to assess after it's all said and done, which is probably going to be later this week before we have definitive answers. But it is an interesting conversation. What we're going to do in a moment is talk about the ballot propositions in a little more detail and give you some uh, details on what's in and what's out that we know of and what's still up in the air. Because these ballot propositions on a lot of different issues are going to make dramatic changes here in the state of Arizona. So we're going to get to those coming up in just a moment. You're listening to continuing Arizona votes coverage of the 2022 election with Mike Broomhead. 
Hey, thanks for being here this morning. I want to remind you, if you haven't subscribed to the Mike Broomhead Show podcast, it's pretty simple to do on any device you have. You won't miss a minute of the show. And the Mike Broomhead Show podcast this week is brought, by my, brought to you by my good friend, Carol Royce, Keller Williams Realty, East Valley. Get a higher price selling your home and guaranteed offers at higherprice.com. That's higherprice.com. I want to go over a couple of the key ballot initiatives. Uh, the property tax exemption for disabled vets passing in early results. That seemed like a walkover. That's Prop 130. Um, that is up, you know, with like 55 to 45. That's a 10-point spread. That seemed like it was going to be a pretty easy thing to pass. But a couple of the others, the ballot measure to require disclosure of political spending, it looks like it's winning as well. That's Prop 211. That, again, doesn't surprise a lot of people because Prop 211 was saying if you split, is it $25,000 or more if you make that kind of a donation, um, you have to be able – you have to disclose who is do- donating. There are some limits in the ballot measure. Disclosure would only happen if individuals gave $5,000 or more to a committee that spent at least $50,000 on a given statewide or legislative race or ballot proposition. So it's your $5,000 donation and then that pack or that committee that – a political action committee had to spend $50,000 on one of those things for this to be then this report to have to go in uh, local elections. It would drop to $2,500 for an individual contribution and 25 for the committee spending on a particular candidate in local elections and issues. So uh, that 211 passed. People want more transparency on the big dollars that are being spent on elections. Um, the other one, 308. What is interesting about Prop 308 is I was not a proponent of 308 um, because I have a couple of reasons. I think we need to work with the Dreamers, without a doubt. I think we need to get this settled. But I think putting Band-Aids on the problem f- exacerbates and furthers the problem. It doesn't force people to fix anything. But I really believed that 308 was going to be a pretty easy passage. And right now, it's close. It, it, it's just – it's not even at 51 percent. So it's basically – 50 and a half to just over 49. So it's still pretty close with a lot of votes still to be cast. And then Prop 309 was um, voter identification and you were going to have to uh, – driver's license or or last four-year social on, on mail-in ballots. Um, that issue I think is different. It would requ- – so I'm going to just read a bit from a story. Arizona's required ID at the polls for years. Early returns Tuesday showed voters leaning against adding this requirement. It would make um, – which lawmakers sent to the ballot would tighten identification requirements for voters, both those who vote by mail and those who vote at the polls on election day. If it passes, early voters would get an extra piece of paper and affidavit in their ballot packet. The affidavit would require the voters to uh, driver's license number and last four digits of a social security number, their date of birth, and their signature. Um, so the the message here in Arizona has been in the past, uh, Republicans largely are the ones that take advantage of mail-in voting. But that is not the case anymore. As of 2020, that flipped dramatically. You can see what happened yesterday when early vote results came in. Democrats were leading by 14, 15, 16 percent in some races by this morning. I think it was a 14 point lead, uh, a, a 14 point lead for Katie Hobbs over Kerry Lake last night at first drop. When I woke up this morning to come here, it is a half a point. So it is flipped with that early voting. But I thought this one would be defeated pretty soundly, um, and it, it doesn't look like it has yet. It's still within a percentage point.
or at about a percentage point. And then last but not least is 310, the creation of, uh, of, of money for fire districts in order to help the rural areas and for areas where it's unincorporated in those fire districts. It's pretty fascinating that 51 to 48, they have voted almost 52 to 48. We are seeing um, – that it's vote no so far. We, it's a long way from over, but these ballot propositions uh, are, are altering of the Constitution here in Arizona, and it's something really important. And I was a, I was a bit surprised. I thought for sure 308 was going to be a walkover. I thought the vast majority of people in Arizona were going to vote in favor of in-state tuition. Um, I think people want this problem solved. I will tell you, I don't know. There are some. But I don't know any. The people I know, even the furthest right people I know, understand that we're not deporting the dreamers, that the dreamers need some kind of legal satisfaction and status in the U.S., and I believe it's going to be citizenship. But they also believe that there's a price that needs to be paid um, that it, it, and whatever that is. But I thought for sure 308 was going to pass, and this Band-Aid – it may not, and it's it's a fa- it's a fascinating look at what's going on with the elections. I, I and I that's the only way I th- thing I can say about it is fascinating because as much as those leads were and they were kind of mirroring each other, we're seeing these things close. So there are a couple of these propositions that pass pretty easily and handily, but some of them are going to go down to the wire just like everything else. So I'm anxious to be, we're going to be talking about this for days and days and trying to figure this all out. Um, what we're going to do for just a minute is we're going to shift gears and we're going to turn to the economy. There is new data that is out about holiday spending and what the projections are and how it's going to affect the retail markets here in Phoenix and across the country. And what is next? Are we going to see more rate hikes? So just stick around for just a couple of moments. We're going to pull off the election for just a minute and talk about the economy. So stick around for it. And strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here. Kind of a cool thing happening here. Uh, Most people that have pets are proud of their pets. They've got tons of photos of their pets. And if you would like to send them to us, we want to see them. You have a photo of your pet could win you a $100 gift card. Just head to the contest page at KTAR.com for complete details how to enter your pet. Um, I want to shift to the economy just for a minute. We are going to continue our coverage with the elections as things are narrowing. We're going to get into the numbers and how close they are if you're just jumping in and hearing this for the first time. We'll get to those numbers. But again, the impact that this is going to have on our economy, I've talked about elections for a long time, and the more I've been involved, the more I've learned, the more local you are, the more it affects you. So yes, the big races, the race for United States Senate is important, the control of the United Senate, United States Senate. Very important. But what happens in your legislative district? What happens in our state legislature? What happens with the governor's race, the local races? We want to look at members of Congress and the House of Representatives, absolutely. But it's local that matters, What the direction that we're heading. The national stuff is what we are seeing, but it affects us locally. Um, a net 17% of people say they will spend less this holiday season. Here's a headline. Inflation will have an impact on Phoenix' lucrative holiday shopping season. This is from the Phoenix, Bus- the Phoenix Business Journal. And it's a great piece from our partners over there. Um, shop- 
shoppers will either be cutting back on holiday spending a lot or staying the same as last year. It just depends on their income level, according to a new survey. A little over 1,000, 1,080 U.S. consumers found that shoppers who earn less than $50,000 a year plan to spend around $600 for the holidays. That's 30.9% lower than the average holiday budget last year. And 17.1 lower, the same group spent in 2021. For consumers in households earning more than 150000 the average budget will be around 1878 about 9.7% more than they spent last year. So we are seeing working-class Americans are being so affected by inflation, um, and it's difficult. I, I mean, I know that's obvious, but it's a difficult thing for families. Um, Facebook, Meta, you know, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, Meta, is laying off over 11,000 employees, reducing its workforce by around 13%. Now, is that because they have been, uh, you know, been a victim of their own, um, uh, own doing? Or is it economic? Is part of the economy driving this as well? There is a little bit of good news. A locomotive machinist narrowly approved ratification of a labor agreement, meaning that we may have averted a rail strike. If there is a rail strike in the U.S. in our current economy and the way it is with the diesel shortage that is out there, we were going to see huge, huge ramifications in our economy because goods and services are still shipped across this country in the rail system. It was going to affect riders on rail, of course, you know, people that take Amtrak and otherwise, but this was going to have a massive effect on the U.S. economy. So hopefully we're going to avert a rail strike as well. Um, a couple of other stories that I think tie into the economy and what we always are talking about. The inventory of drilled but uncompleted wells declined rapidly during the pandemic but has stabilized in recent months. After seeing oil demand plunge in 2020, U.S. producers switched to frack fracking. They paused drilling new rigs in favor of uh, completing of fracking wells that already had been drilled. So what we are seeing now, the inventory is at a five-year low in the drilling but uncompleted wells, according to data. And that could have a big effect on the future of production here in the U.S., and we've I've talked quite a bit about this because I think that one of the things that we have to argue about and we should be arguing about, I mean debating, I don't mean arguing in a fight, but debating is the at least the postponement of the president's plans and, and movements and maneuvers and what they're doing moving to uh, renewable energy. This onslaught and assault against fossil fuels that's happening that is having a dramatic effect on diesel especially because we are not producing diesel fuel it is a refining issue there was just another refinery fire i believe in california what that's going to do to the phoenix area and arizona gas prices we don't know because we get a, a major part of our fuel comes from california is that going to affect arizona these are all questions that everybody's asking because where it is to some people you know, myself included, it is it is uh, annoying. It's infuriating, but it isn't life altering. But I've been in that position, and I think sometimes leaders forget that. You know, when you say you're looking big picture, I don't think you are looking at the details enough. When small businesses that are struggling to survive, I'm, I'm going to paint a little picture, and you may not think it's an accurate picture, but it is realistic in the minds of many. I'm, there's going to be disagreement with me on some of this. A small business is trying to survive. Taxes are going to go up on them. 
We also know with 87,000 new IRS agents working, there is going to be more scrutiny into small businesses that are trying to keep as much of their profits as they possibly can. But compliance is going to be an issue, and it always has been. You know, in any company in the contracting industry, for all the contractors that are out there listening, we look at, and all industries do, but especially in contracting, you look at your bottom line with the employees you have. There's productive and there's non-productive labor. Now, non-productive doesn't mean non-essential. It just means it isn't what makes you money. Your people in the field make you money. If you manufacture and sell a product, those people that manufacture, those are the productive labor. It is the people that have to deal with compliance. When it's tax compliance and all these other compliance issues, when that goes up, your cost of that goes up to small businesses. So you have all that happening now. And if you think about whoever you use, whoever the electrician or the plumber that you use, the AC person that you use, whoever cleans your pool, whatever it is, when the price of fuel goes up for them and they have multiple vehicles that they have to fuel up every day, every week to make the money to do the jobs at your place of business or your home, when the price of fuel goes up as dramatically as it has, it affects their bottom line like a tax would. And they are hurting. And I don't believe that we are paying close enough attention to that at the highest level. They will make a passing statement that they understand times are rough. I don't think they understand how rough times are because you can't change it. You have to have those vehicles on the road. You've got no choice. So that bill has to be paid. You've got to pay for the fuel in those vehicles. It comes directly off your bottom line, and it is stressing and straining many companies along with the other costs that are coming their way. So I'll say it again. Maybe the White House ought to look at what they can do to unleash the American oil companies. Why in the world have we gone to nations like Saudi Arabia, going to the UAE, going to Iran, going to Venezuela? Why have we gone to them and begged them to up their production of oil? And the president doesn't go in and beg the American oil companies. What he does is he demonizes them. Why doesn't he treat the oil companies, the domestic oil companies, with the same respect he treated those foreign governments that said absolutely not to his request? As a matter of fact, they went in the opposite direction, and they reduced production. Instead, he has started a verbal war with the oil companies. He has told them they're going out of business. And we are all paying a price for that. And maybe you agree with that plan long term, but in the short term with what's going on around the world, how is this timing good? And I don't think it is. I don't think it is. What we're going to do in a moment is we'll shift gears, like I said, from the election. Um, there is an interesting story about the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office. And a contempt of court order. We're going to talk about this and how it's similar in some ways to what happened to his predecessor, but it's different in others. We're going to talk a little bit about that coming up in just a moment. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show. KTAR News, 92.3 FM and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here. Appreciate you spending some time with us. Sheriff Penzone was on with Arizona's Morning News this morning talking a little bit about, well, talking about election security. But then they asked him about this contempt of court case. Um, I'm just going to read from this very quickly. Uh, a federal judge on Tuesday found the sheriff of Metro Phoenix to be in civil contempt of court in the same racial profiling case in which his predecessor, Joe Arpaio, was found in contempt of court six years ago. Um, and there are some differences in this in the progress 
progress that they've made. And I, I'll be honest, I've talked to the sheriff about Sheriff Penzone. I talked to him about this process. And even though he explained it to me, I still don't understand about how you've got to qualify for everything or you've got to you've got to make, meet the threshold for everything at once. But I want you to hear a little bit of what the sheriff shared, because I think this is important for us in Maricopa County, because obviously it's the sheriff's department for our county. But for those of you that are Phoenicians, there is a DOJ investigation ongoing in Phoenix as well. And the reason why. One of the key reasons why Chief Sullivan was brought into Phoenix um, is because he has dealt with DOJ things in the past and is – I don't know if he's an expert in it, but he's very good at handling them and trying to make sure that whatever that investigation turns out, the Phoenix Police Department reacts a way that's appropriate. So I want you to hear a little bit of what Sheriff Penzone had to say about why this contempt order came. We have a considerable number of employees, deputies detention officers, civilian employees, who investigate every singular complaint. And I think they've closed upwards of four, almost 5,000 or so in that same time frame. So the cases they're talking about haven't been ignored. It's just the time frame to get them done because the orders are so substantial. So it says Maricopa County Sheriff Paul Punzone was found in contempt for noncompliance with the court-ordered overhaul of his agency's much-criticized internal affairs operation. Now, to be clear, this was this this accusation did not happen on his watch. It was the previous sheriff, Sheriff Arpaio, when this happened, and Penzone um, inherited it when he came in. But that doesn't mean he doesn't have to be compliant. I just want to give you the background of how all of this happened, um, and and it's not to to go after Arpaio either. It's just I'm wanting you to accurately know how this came about. Um, they have a backlog of 2,100 investigations, each taking an average of more than 600 days to complete. A court order requires those investigations to be completed within 60 to 85 days, depending on which operation within the agency handles the case. So that's where the contempt order came from. And uh, this is part. This is again what happened. Um, what happened in 2018? We notified the court in 2018. These orders are too comprehensive when it comes to these issues. We don't have the latitude to handle them like most professions would and have a supervisory interaction. There's like a 250-point checklist for every single investigation. So I'm not happy about how long they're taking, but I don't want people to confuse that with them not getting done. And then you have a triage situation. If I have something where an employee tomorrow does something egregious, that case goes to the front of the line. So if something that's less substantial suddenly gets pushed back again because I'm going to fire somebody or I'm going to suspend them, that's a priority. So you're caught with staffing issues, and he's talking about uh, – he, he wants everyone to know, and he was reiterating, that even though it's taking a long time to get them done, these cases are being worked. What's being misrepresented or what people assume is that these cases aren't getting done. The employees are working their bottoms off to get them all done, but the demand – and then you look at circumstances like we went from about 5% vacancy ratio to 25% due to COVID and some other issues. We're being asked to do more, like guard recorders offices, handle protests, um, you know, deal with a fentanyl issue, work with the issues in the jail. And we're also being you know, demanded to, to do more focus on internal investigations and external crimes. And so I, he, he, the last thing I want you to hear from him is he says that he respectfully disagrees with the court. I will say this. For me personally, the idea that you're tattooing me with a, uh, uh, you know, a scarlet letter in the same way my predecessor who was violating people's civil rights and racially profiling and doing all those things, this is not your father's sheriff's office. It's a hell of a lot better, and the men and women are doing a great job, and, and this is not a reflection of who we are. So we'll deal with it, but I respect the court, but I disagree with the court. So, you know, the reason a couple of reasons why this is a major issue. Number one is this is an elected office in a partisan election. Uh, the sheriff has been elected.
elected uh, again and will be running for office in two years to, to retain the office of the sheriff. And this will be something that follows him around and, need, and needs to be addressed. But the other part of it is to acknowledge that, the, as the sheriff said, we're working the cases. I have no reason not to believe him. We're working these cases. It's taken longer than we want, but we're working them. And um, to, to make sure you acknowledge that what, what happened didn't happen under his watch. And I, so it's un, I, I want to be fair to everyone. And, and uh, we want to make sure that when you hold somebody accountable or there's something that happens, if you inherit a problem, it's your job to fix that problem. But it's not a problem you created. I just think it's a fair distinction to make. And uh, we'll keep you updated. We'll get the sheriff on the show and talk about this as this goes on because it's going to be, I think, a major issue. Coming up right after 10 o'clock, the county recorder apologizes for the voting inconvenience. We will talk about what happened yesterday and what about those ballots that were put into number three. We'll get to that in a moment.